Uh, let's ask God to help us with his word. Let's pray. Our true and living God, our Father, uh, we are always weak when we come to your word. We are blinded by our sin, preoccupied with our own concerns, so often deaf to what you say. And so we pray for your grace, and we pray that your grace would work powerfully in our lives this morning, that it will give us understanding of your word and move us to love it and to put it into practice. And Father, we pray that in my weakness, your grace and the power of your grace would also be known and that I would speak your word truthfully and clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. Go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, that has to be one of the aspects of the Christian faith that is the least popular with society in general. Oh yes, encouraging people you know, to be good and to love their neighbours, uh, that's for our society the proper role of religion and that's an activity all are comfortable with. But Christians actively getting out there to encourage others to become what they are, calling others to start following Jesus? Huh. Well, we're not so sure about that, are we, as a society? First of all, that implies that those who are not following Jesus are not okay as they are, that they need to change. And in a culture where being a Christian is about being a good person, well, Christians calling on people to become Christians is saying that, well, Christians don't think other people are as good as they are. And that's pretty offensive. And for many people, just demonstrably untrue. And in a multi-faith society, there's always unease about evangelism. Or should we call it proselytisation, wanting others to join your group? Calling adherents of other religions to change and become Christians is saying that they are wrong in what they believe. And that's a kind of challenge to their identity and may upset them, create social unease, or worse, people can react badly to being told that what they and their family believe and have believed is wrong. So evangelism's a threat to social stability. And thirdly, haven't our anthropologists brought us dreadful tales of the destruction of ancient and worthy cultures by aggressive Christian evangelism that was really a form of cultural imperialism? So, talking about going and making disciples, whether here or overseas, seems to be, for many, a weird combination of neediness and arrogance. Arrogance, Christians insisting that they're right and everyone else is wrong. Neediness, Christians wanting to be affirmed as right by getting others to agree with them. And sadly, many Christians seem to have brought into this suspicion of evangelism, of making disciples. Oh, they're happy to be Christians privately, thankful for the blessings of believing themselves, but they're uncomfortable with, even embarrassed by, a keenness to make disciples of Jesus. They're concerned about rocking the societal boat, worried about seeming to be rude or insensitive. Yet this is Jesus' command his last command in the gospel. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, he said. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, rather than being an expression of neediness or cultural superiority, I hope that by the end of this morning, you'll see that this is a command given in love by our Lord Jesus. And obeying it, making disciples, is an act of love. Now, the basis of Jesus' command to make disciples is that he has all authority in heaven and earth. Now, Jesus has already demonstrated throughout the gospel authority on earth. He has commanded the winds and the waves to be still, and they became still. He has cast out demons, healed the blind and lame, even forgiven sins. Authority on earth to forgive sins. But risen from the dead, he now says he has all authority, not just on earth, but in heaven as well. That is, he is saying all is subject to him. All creation must do his bidding. There are none that can rival or overturn his rule. His decisions are now the decisions of heaven, the decisions of God. No one can set aside or reverse those, or reverse his judgments. So the risen Jesus is not needy. There's nothing people can add to his rule and nothing they can take away from him. He doesn't need to win some popularity contest. He doesn't feel threatened when people reject his gospel. The truth of his reign does not need our affirmation. All authority is now his. And that's a big claim, isn't it? So why should we believe that? Why did his first followers believe that? Well, the answer's not hard to find, is it? It's because that Jesus talking with them on that mountain is the Jesus they had witnessed killed, but who is now alive before them in the body in which he was killed. Alive, as we see in the other resurrection appearances recorded in the Gospel and Paul, alive to be touched, to offer his hands with their nail marks to a Thomas to feel his wounds, to be talked with, to be eaten with, whether in a room in Jerusalem or a beach in Galilee. The resurrection is the reason to believe Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. The resurrection is God's great confirmation that Jesus is who he claimed to be in his teaching throughout his ministry, that, well, yes, Jesus is the one the angels declared him to be at the beginning of the gospel, before his birth and at his birth. You remember that? We've just had Christmas. He was declared to be Emmanuel, God with us. Oh, the heavenly host, welcome the birth of Christ the Lord. The Magi come to worship the King of the Jews. From the outset, Jesus is, well, claimed to be the Christ, the Lord. And during his lifetime, his followers confess him as Christ. And when Peter makes that confession, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. This hasn't to be being revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father, Jesus affirms that he is the Christ, that is, he is the one who will fulfil Psalm 2, the one to whom the rule of the nations will be given. He said to me, you are my son, 
Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. The resurrection says Jesus is the Christ, the son who will rule over all. Oh, and Jesus throughout his life spoke of himself as the son of man, as the son of man who would be put to death, but also rise the son of man who would be glorified with the father. The son of man who we are told in Daniel receives an eternal kingdom. Verse 14, he was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom one that can never be destroyed. The resurrection tells us that in not coming down from the cross, Jesus was in truth the king his opponents mocked him for claiming to be. The resurrection says he is the son of God, the son of David spoken in Psalm 2. He is the son of man with an eternal dominion. Now only the great creator God can raise the dead, reverse the human judgment of death, give life to dead bodies. He has raised Jesus. He has said yes to Jesus and to all that Jesus has taught. The resurrection is what has convinced Jesus' followers that he has all authority in heaven on earth. But at this point, if you are listening to the reading, you might say, hang on, didn't it say some doubted? Doesn't that cast doubt on Jesus' resurrection, suggest that it's not as clear-cut, as definite as you're claiming? Well, no, it doesn't cast doubt on the fact of the resurrection. What that word does is tell us a lot about the mental state of those 11 disciples, those first witnesses. You see, doubt here doesn't speak of unbelief, as if they doubted that the Jesus before whom they were bowing, the Jesus they were worshipping, was somehow not alive or not Jesus. Now, this word doubt here speaks of uncertainty and hesitation. It's only used once elsewhere in the New Testament, and that's by Jesus to describe Peter's state of mind when he started to sink when he was walking on the water towards Jesus. You remember the story? Uh, Jesus had put the disciples in a boat to go across to the other side of the lake, uh, Lake of Galilee. Uh, he had then walked towards them. They'd seen him and Peter had said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Jesus had said, come. Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards him. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus did save him, but he said, you have little faith, why did you doubt? Now think about that, Peter didn't doubt that Jesus was there. That's why he was walking on the water. He didn't doubt Jesus was there, that's why he cried out to Jesus, Lord, save me. But Peter is afraid of all that is going on, he's overwhelmed and within himself he begins to hesitate. And he sinks. And Jesus says, why did you doubt? On the mountain, some of the disciples are still afraid and uncertain in themselves, as many of us would be if we'd met somebody raised from the dead. They experience this uncertainty, this doubt, 
because they know it is Jesus before them, not because they doubt it's Jesus before them. It's the fact of Jesus' presence. It's his certain presence that creates this doubt, uncertainty, fear, hesitation. You see, they're uncertain about what it all means, what it means for who Jesus is. Maybe they're a little uncertain about, well, whether the risen Jesus they deserted would welcome them. Oh, they're uncertain about what it means for them. It's all pretty overwhelming. But Jesus resolves that hesitancy, that uncertainty, by the word he speaks to them. His resurrection means he has all authority in heaven and earth. He is the Son of Man who receives the eternal kingdom. And this resurrection means that they have a task now to include others in his kingdom by their preaching of the gospel, by their witness. The crucified Jesus has been raised from the dead by God, his heavenly Father. He is the Son of the Father. All authority is his. And think for a moment just how good it is that all authority has been given to the Jesus we meet in the gospel. Because the gospel reveals two things about Jesus and authority. Firstly, it reveals that Jesus' experience endured, misused, oppressive authority. Right from the beginning of his life, remember, he had had to flee to Egypt. He was a refugee because of King Herod's abuse of authority. At the end of his life, he was unjustly tried and cruelly executed because of the self-interest of the Jewish authorities and the callous indifference of the Romans. He, knew, he knows what it is to be oppressed, to experience injustice at the hands of a callous and cruel authority. So the one who now has all authority is one who can sympathise, can sympathise with all who are oppressed by the abuse of authority and he can help and he will not be careless with his authority. He won't use it to deny what is just and fair to others. Oh and secondly we see in the gospel how Jesus has exercised the authority he already had on earth. He hasn't used it for self-aggrandizement or self-enrichment He's used it to make whole, to set free from oppression, to spare from judgment, to bring peace, to forgive sins, to cast out demons, to silence the storm that threatened life, to bring sight and hearing to the blind and deaf. He spent himself to enrich the lives of others. He used his authority to do good. And now the risen Jesus, who is good, and who has all authority in heaven and earth, gives this command to his disciples, to his followers. Go and make disciples. You see, making disciples is not the idea of Christians seeking power or influence or approval. It's the will of the Lord, Jesus. Go, he says, and make disciples. Bring others to follow me by listening to what I say, trusting me, and then doing what I command, because that's what it is to be a disciple. Bring all, bring others of all nations to be my disciples. And that command itself is an expression of Jesus' love. That's right. Jesus is not needy. He doesn't need followers to boost him. And Jesus has just had a pretty tough time at the hands of his enemies. 
And Jesus, well, he's the son of God. He's been entrusted with the judgment of all, entrusted with the destruction of all who rebel against God. Jesus, risen from the dead, could have said, go, destroy the ungodly, destroy the idolaters. This is the end. Exercise vengeance on those who have oppressed me. He could have wound things up there and then. But he says, make disciples. And you know, it is good to be a disciple. The command to make disciples is Jesus giving to rebels an invitation to life. You see, think of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus, to be someone who believes what Jesus says of himself and takes direction, their direction in life, in all things from Jesus. Now, hopefully many of you already know this for yourselves, but let me remind you of some of the good of being a disciple of Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus is to find life in a world of death, life that is eternal life. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. <laughs> and when Peter says, we've left everything to follow you, Jesus says, verse 29 of Matthew 19, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. To be a disciple of Jesus is to find life. It's the life of the age to come, in the new heaven and earth, where all things are made new. Oh yes, and to be a disciple of Jesus is to be included in the new covenant people of God. At the Last Supper, he breaks bread and he gives it to his disciples. And they hear him say, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. That is, to be a disciple is to know that the Lord Jesus has poured out his blood to give you life amongst his people. It's to know that you now secure, you belong securely to his people because in the new covenant God has said he will forgive your sins and never call them to mind again. Oh yes, and as you take that bread, to be a disciple is to know you are loved that your Lord gives his life to bring you life, to bring you to be where he is. It's good to be a disciple. Oh, to be a disciple is to be able to know and to call upon the living creator as your father. It is, Matthew 5, his disciples that Jesus teaches to pray to God, our father, to know that they can have access to the creator and that they can come to him as his child. To be a disciple is to be part of Jesus' forever family. Here are my mother and brothers, pointing, says Jesus, to his disciples. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And yes, to be a disciple is to find rest, rest in this weary world for our souls as we take on the yoke of obedience to Jesus' teaching. To be a disciple is to be freed from the burden of justifying ourselves. It's to be freed from the burden of self-direction where we can never be sure of what is right and whether we've done it right. To be a disciple is to know rest. And these gifts of the Lord to those who trust and follow him, life, forgiveness, peace with God, knowing God as your father, belonging, rest, 
These gifts are not particularly Western needs, are they? They are human needs, the needs of all nations. We all die. We all face judgment. We all long for an abiding love. We were all made to know God. It's good for any of any nation or culture to be a disciple, to become a follower of Jesus. But how are disciples of Jesus to be made? What are the means for making disciples that Jesus gives to his followers? Because disciples of Jesus can only be made Jesus' way. Well, Jesus speaks of baptising and teaching. Baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, baptising is a shorthand way of speaking, of calling people to respond with repentance and faith to the gospel. In Matthew, the baptism that's been spoken of before is John's baptism. That was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in response to John's proclamation that the Lord was coming to his people. It was the means of including those who responded with faith to his message in the people of God who are ready for the coming of the Messiah. Jesus' followers are to preach the gospel of Jesus, that he has died for our sins, been buried and been raised by God from the dead. And they're to call people to respond to that message by believing the gospel and turning back to God by confessing that Jesus is Lord. Those who believe are to receive the sign of that repentance and faith, baptism, a sign that assures them that they're included in the people of God through their sins being forgiven, a sign that speaks of a new life where they live now loyal to Jesus. Uh, this baptism is to be into the name of the Father, Son and Spirit. And into the name of the Father, Son and Spirit means coming under the authority of the one true God, revealed in the gospel of Jesus as Father, Son and Spirit. In believing the gospel, they are to indicate their allegiance allegiance to the God revealed in the gospel, that they now belong to him, are loyal to him to do his will by being baptised into his name. To confess Jesus as Lord, as we do when we believe the gospel, is to confess the Trinity, isn't it? Because it's to confess Jesus as the Son of God, God with us, the one who came from the Father and is returning to the Father. Oh, it's to confess Jesus as the one who, with the Father, sends the Spirit to his followers. Only those who can make the confession that Jesus is Lord can receive this baptism into the name of the Father, Son and Spirit. And baptism into the name of the Father, Son and Spirit is also a reminder of the authority of the message the disciples are to preach of the authority of the declaration of forgiveness to all who believe the gospel of Jesus. <laughs> it's the triune God's message. It's the message of the Father, Son and Spirit. And it is the triune God's forgiveness that believing this message brings. And no one will reverse the decision or the forgiveness of God. The disciples are to make others disciples of Jesus by preaching the gospel of Jesus 
and then calling for men and women to respond to the gospel in the way Jesus commands. Repentance and faith expressed in being baptised into the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, coming under the authority of the true and living God who is saved in his Son. And just as being a disciple begins with the word and responding to the word as it commands, so people continue as disciples, we continue as disciples by being taught to do all that Jesus has commanded. You see, how can those who do not see Jesus, and that's all of us, isn't it, since the day Jesus ascended to heaven, how can those who do not see Jesus follow him like the first followers of Jesus, the first disciples? Well, it's only by knowing what Jesus has taught and putting it into practice. Believers show their trust in Jesus by taking their direction from Jesus. So disciples are made by the teaching of what Jesus has taught, but not teaching what Jesus has taught as some abstract body of knowledge. They are disciples as they do what Jesus has taught, put it into practice. And they're not disciples if they pick and choose what they will do from what Jesus has taught. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll have that bit about integrity, but you know that forgiving bit, that's just too hard. I'll keep my resentments, thank you. No, no, it's a teaching to do all that Jesus has taught. We follow on Jesus' terms, not our own. He's the boss, not us. And this Gospel of Matthew is full, isn't it, of what Jesus has taught. You can think of chapters 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, or chapter 10, or chapter 18. And when we think of what Jesus has taught, we see again how good it is for anyone to be a disciple of Jesus, because this is good teaching, isn't it? It tells us to be people of integrity, whose yes is yes and no is no, to be generous and forgiving, to be faithful from the heart in our marriages, to love our enemies. It's teaching that insists we not be hypocrites, but live to please the God who sees and knows all, even what we do in secret. It's teaching that frees us from the worship of money and anxiety about material things. It's teaching that brings us into a genuine daily relationship with the living God. It's teaching that creates a community where even the least is precious. And where we're to practice reconciliation through forgiveness where we wrong each other as we will. This teaching is good for those who put it into practice. In fact, Jesus says they are the wise people who build their house on the rock that their lives will matter for eternity. Oh, and it's good for the communities in which they live, for the disciples of Jesus to be taught to do what Jesus says. For it's as the disciples put into practice what Jesus teaches that they are salt and light in their communities, stopping the decay of rampant self-love, shining the truth about God into the lives of those about them. There is nothing to be embarrassed about in making disciples of Jesus. No need for reluctance in asking others to become what every believer is, what you are if you're a believer in Jesus, because the disciple of Jesus has a life which is now in connection with eternal life, a life of love, a life in relationship with the living creator God 
knowing that he has loved you. There is no need to be embarrassed about asking people to be disciples of Jesus. They're made through preaching and teaching, calling people to respond and to obey as they trust Jesus. Oh, and yes, making disciples also involves going. How could it not? For people have to hear the gospel to be called to become disciples. And to hear, someone has to go to them with the gospel. Now Mel, as we've heard, is going. She's going to make disciples. Others have gone from us. What about the rest of us? How do we go? Because let's face it, in many ways, as a congregation, we emphasise staying. Not leaving the congregation unless you've got a really good reason to leave. And we do that because we are better together. Better at teaching all that Jesus has commanded together. Better at encouraging each other to persevere in love and doing good together. And yes, better at preaching the gospel into our community together. So how does a congregation that stays go? Well, it's by not being a congregation that turns in on itself, that becomes preoccupied with its own experience of community, but is always outward-facing, always welcoming, always offering the gospel to those we live amongst. We go by being a congregation that supports evangelists, like those who work for AFES amongst us, by being a congregation that stays open not just to the needs of our community for the gospel but the need of the world for the gospel and supporting those God calls from amongst us to serve elsewhere. We go by being a congregation that prays for gospel opportunity individually and collectively. As disciples of Jesus, how could we not be going to make disciples? I mean, Jesus came from heaven to seek and save, to bring like a good doctor healing uh, to, our, to our dying souls. Jesus found us just as he has found everyone who is his disciple. And he calls his followers just to become like him, to love others enough to seek them to seek them to become his followers by preaching his gospel word, the word that saves. You see, go and make disciples. It's not needy. It's not arrogant. It is a great and generous command by the Lord who has all authority. It's given in love, love for the world, love for Jesus' people, his sheep, who are yet to hear his voice. And it's to be obeyed not out of guilt, but out of love and thankfulness by every believer. Love of the one who loved us and who has called us to show our love for him by doing what he says. Love for others who, like us, are lost until found by the gospel. It's to be obeyed in love and thankfulness that we've been included in his people, welcomed into this good life of the disciple of Jesus by someone making a disciple of us, by preaching the gospel to us and teaching us what Jesus has commanded, whether that person was a parent or a youth group leader, a uni worker or a friend. We are thankful, aren't we, to be disciples of Jesus. If you're a believer, 
Making disciples is asking others to become what you are, those who know now God as their Father through trusting Jesus, who know they're forgiven and included in the people God will raise to live in his kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth. In fact, when you realise how good it is to be a disciple of Jesus, what an extraordinary privilege it is. When you realise what hangs on whether someone responds to the gospel of Jesus, you speak to them with repentance and faith or with unbelief. When you realise what hangs on persevering in doing all that Jesus commands, engaging with this command to make disciples can sometimes, though it's a good command given in love, can sometimes be overwhelming, can't it? Who is sufficient? Who is equal to such a task of sharing the gospel that brings life, says Paul? He recognised his frailty, that he was just a jar of clay, something frail, disposable, mortal, an inappropriate container for the treasure of the gospel, this word from God that brings eternal life and knowledge of the true God. And when you, like Paul, recognise your own inadequacy and frailty, well, that's the time to remember Jesus' promise, isn't it? You see, our Lord frames this command between the statement of his power and the promise of his presence. I am with you always to the end of the earth. Through his spirit, Jesus is always with his disciples. There's no place and no time when he is not present with us, present to keep us, present to change us through his spirit to become like him in character, and yes, present to glorify himself in his disciples' weakness, to show the power of the gospel his frail followers preach is his power, his power to give life through his word. It is in our weakness that we will find Christ's grace sufficient. It's in our weakness that he promises his power will reach its full expression. And so remember, in your weakness, you are strong in Jesus. Now, Mel will need to remember that, won't she? It's obvious, isn't it? You know, humidity, exhaustion, stumblings and frustrations of an unfamiliar language, cross-cultural confusions, loneliness. But Jesus will be present in power and his grace will be enough for her. Actually, we have to remember it too. Because, let's face it, we are so weak, so unable to get attention, to get people to engage with eternity, so unable to mount those knock-down arguments that would free people to listen to the gospel, often confused about our best response, always struggling for resources to make the gospel known, oh yes, and always seemingly compromised with our worldliness or fearful of what others will think. We need to remember that Jesus is always with his disciples and has said to you, my grace is sufficient for you. He said to you, my power is made perfect in your weakness. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Love your Lord and love your neighbour by giving yourself to make disciples disciples and many of you engage with that so keep on as the year ahead comes 
keep on with kids club and play group and explorers with youth group and mainly music. Keep on supporting our missionaries and our evangelists in AFES. Share in the work of making disciples. Teach each other by reading the Bible together in twos and threes or in growth groups or in Sunday school or Saturday night with the Iranians. Join in the work of making disciples. Keep on with it. Go out of your way to speak to others about Jesus. That is not rudeness. That is love. And if you find reluctance... If you find you'd rather preserve your own quiet life rather than risk speaking or losing time by putting yourself out, if you find in your heart that lack of love, well, repent and confess it for the sin it is. Small love and find forgiveness and ask Jesus for more of his spirit, a greater work of his spirit in your heart to bear that fruit of love so that you will long for others to come to be what you are, a follower of Jesus, forgiven, one who has life, forever life, one of his forever family, one who knows the eternal God as your father, one who can build with your life what will last as you listen to him and do what he says. Persevere in sharing the gospel and teaching all he has taught. Go, says our Lord to you, and make disciples. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, our Father, we pray in your mercy we would not just sit here and enjoy the comfort and the security of knowing Jesus as our Saviour and you as our Father, and then just keep it to ourselves. Help us to be hearers that do, to make disciples by calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus and by teaching all we can, all that Jesus has taught us to do. We ask this in his name. Amen.